This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. In temple times, the high priest was the judge. But today, who is the judge? There's no temple, yet the commandments have not been destroyed, so what do we do? And who is to judge? Michael Rood gives us a reality check for all believers, for today and the end. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Who is your judge? It's not who you think, but you're going to find out just who it is tonight on Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. This is the final episode of our current series, Rightly Dividing the Truth. It's a remastered version of a series that Michael actually did a few years ago, but now Michael is still recovering from his stroke, but we wanted to give you an update on his amazing progress with a person who knows him better than anyone. Torah fans, please join me in welcoming Michael's best friend, his rock, his wife, Anna Lil Mora. Welcome, Anna Lil. Hi guys, how are you? I'm what? here um Michael's office. All right, well, a lot of people have been asking about Michael, so how is he doing? Well, he's, um, I just have to praise the Father, praise Yehovah. He's been faithful, he's given us the strength, the courage to go through this. Um, first of all, just wanna thank everyone. Um, it just touches my heart. Um, for their prayers, for their letters, for their just um, supporting us in every way possible. Um, we've been overwhelmed. Um, just for example, just uh, translating to Michael the best wishes and the prayers from the from the Spanish side of the ministry, which some of you know I'm I'm you know supervising that. Un rule despertar, and. Um, like I said, we, we are so grateful for just all the prayers. And let me tell you that the Father has really, really um, listened to your prayers. You all have touched the Father's throne. Um, Michael's recovery has been amazing. Yes, it's been rough. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, it's, if anyone's gone through that or, you know, has a, a relative, you know, there's, um, it's a rough road, but, um, and just, you know, zooming out and seeing it all uh, pan out. It's really been, the Father's given us a lot of times of victory. And um, he's he's working hard. He wants to know, he wants you all to know that he misses, you know, doing what he does, what he loves to do, which is teaching. And he's working hard to get better. Um, he has, you know, therapy every single day, whether it be, and sometimes even twice a day, whether it be um, you know occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, um, singing, um, anything to get him you know better, and um, he's uh, he's just he's working hard you know he's um, he, I hope hopefully you know he'll be on soon just to say hi you know he's he's a marine he's a perfectionist and he wants his speech to be you know much better than it is. Now, so 
Well, and his amazing progress is not just our opinion here on the screen. I mean, his physical therapists have said this is amazing, right? I mean, I remember when he first had a stroke, uh, he, was, he was stuck in a wheelchair for a little bit. And then he's uh, up to a walker. I understand now folks who visit him now, he's using a cane. And I think it's important to, to remind people that all of Michael's mental faculty, it's all there. It's all there. He just needs to bring it out. Is that right? That's, yes, that's correct. Um, the stroke affected his left side. So, um, for example, his his voice, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more, it's quieter, it's not as strong. <laughs> so, it's funny. And, uh, you know, it starts strong, but it dwindles a little at the end. So, he's working on that. But it's, it's a whole, it's the whole therapy together that makes everything Stronger. So his physical therapy locks into the speech therapy as he gets stronger physically, his voice gets stronger as well. Um, it's a labor of patience and that's been hard on both of us. Um, and it's there's been a lot of discipline, per perseverance, definitely. Um, there's good days, bad days. But he, you know, he hasn't plateaued at all. There's uh, every week I see Yehovah's miracles, you know, in little things, big things, that there is progress. And like you said, Scott, he is there mentally. It's there. He's just, you know, trying to bring everything out, get stronger. And um, he is starting to walk with the cane assisted. Um, he's walking with a walker, little less assistance. But, um, you know, he's he's doing everything he can. And I'm there to support him. And He'll come back in Yehovah's good timing, not in ours. <laughs> he is. Uh, we can't wait to see Michael back in the chair. And I understand that uh, Donna Clayton, who is our CFO here at the, at the ministry, she had uh, a challenge for Michael regarding pounding the desk or something. What's that all about? Oh, yeah. Um, Donna comes in to visit and she always like high fives him. And he comes up to high five with his right hand. And Donna's like, nope. Nope. So he has to get that left hand, you know, sometimes slow motion, but doing it the wrong way on here. Um, but anyway, she said that if he ever, you know, hits that desk again, it better be with lefty. And I, <laughs> that's that's her challenge to him. I so, love it. I love it. Oh, before we go, we've got about a minute left, but uh, I know that you know, you're in charge of all things international here at the ministry and the Chinese calendar is a monumental uh, achievement. Uh, it's beautiful. You can see it on the screen here. Tell us about the Chinese calendar. The Chinese calendar is done by Kingdom for Jesus, and, and I'd like everyone to keep them also in prayer. Um, there are like our link, our bridge to Taiwan, to China. Paul Shea has been amazing. And um, that's one of Michael's, he really wants to get back to that because before the stroke, um, him and Paul were actually teaching live to a big congregation in Taiwan on Shabbat. And uh, we're just happy that the calendar is out there and that the Chinese are starting to learn about the Feast of Yehovah. So um, yeah, we, I, and I love to see it in Chinese. It's it's just so, it's so beautiful. So um, yeah, just a sh you know, shout out to Kingdom for Jesus. Wonderful. And Alil, thank you so much for joining us today. We're all praying for Michael. We're praying for you. I, we're very thrilled to hear that there are, you know, this progress being made every day, and he will be back in this chair. Thank you very much for joining us. Our fan. All right.
<laughs> All right, there's no temple, yet the commandments have not been destroyed. So what do we do? Who is to judge? Michael Root explains in the final episode of Rightly Dividing the Truth, up next. New Testament believers look forward to the second coming, while Jews look forward to their first Messiah. With such different expectations, will both groups recognize him when he comes? They know without a question that this is not only the Messiah that the Christians and the Messianic Jews have been talking about, but they also recognize that it is Yehovah God Almighty, their God. In The Sign of the Son of Man, Joel Richardson guides you through the Bible to weave a tapestry of clues that point to Yeshua as both the man resurrected and Yehovah who descends in a cloud. But the only way to watch it is to receive it as our gift. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you The Sign of the Son of Man with Joel Richardson on DVD or Blu-ray. Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you the sign of the Son of Man, plus a hand-painted ceramic kiddush cup with creator of the fruit of the vine in Hebrew. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you the sign of the Son of Man, the hand-painted ceramic kiddush cup, and a beautiful work of art with the Hebrew phrase, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. These are special gifts from Michael Rood, to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Remember, this offer ends June 30th and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610. Or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. Yeshua said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. When did Abraham see his day? When the king of righteousness, the Melech Zadik, brought forth bread and wine. And when he brought forth bread and wine, it says that the Melech Zadik blessed the Most High. And that prayer is still remembered and is what Yeshua said when he blessed the Most High the night of the Last Supper, the night before the Passover lambs were slain. Yeshua said, Baruchatai Yehovah, Elohino Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Mi'aretz. This broken bread represents my broken body my body which is broken for you, by my stripes you are healed. Do this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And in the words of the Melech Zadik, he blessed the Most High. Baruch Atah Yehovah Eloheinu Melech Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, and Yeshua said, this represents and has represented from the time of Abraham the renewed covenant. My blood will purchase for you. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Shabbat shalom. 
study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Shaul's second letter to Timothy. For a man to show himself approved as a workman of the word, one must exercise due diligence to rightly divide this word that was originally given by inspiration of God. The act of rightly dividing is incumbent upon the workman himself. It is his job alone to rightly divide the word. It is not the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. It is the obligation of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. But that leading is dependent upon us obeying the truth that we have. For if we do not obey the truth we have, even the truth we now hold will be taken away from us and we will be given lies to comfort us, up to and including a strong delusion. But as Yeshua instructed his disciples, if you obey the truth, truth in even more abundance will be given to you. And that truth will empower us to live a more than abundant life. It is Yeshua's will for us that we live a power-filled abundant life. That is the express purpose for which he came. The path is narrow, but it is not complicated. In our quest to show ourselves approved as workmen, the artifacts that were added by man need to be separated, divided from the word, and judged against the original word itself. When we rightly divide the word from these artifacts, we can arrive at the original meaning of the text as holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Those artifacts, as we have discussed in a previous session, the chapters, verses, punctuation, marginal references, and explanatory scribal editions, and especially now italicized words, they must be judged by the workman as to their value, and whether they assist the worker in a given situation or hinder us in our understanding. All of these man-made artifacts, of every one of them, italics are among the most helpful as they appear only in the King James Version of the Bible. No other version of the Bible in antiquity or today took the care or accepted the responsibility to tell us when they were deliberately adding words and phrases to the text that were found in no original language documents. But the early students of the English Bible demanded that point of clarification. So the translators went back to work on the 1611 version and italicized most of the words that they deliberately added to their version, the words that were not in the original text. This was done because the serious Bible students of the 17th century demanded to be made aware when the translators added words that were not in the Hebrew or Greek text from which they were translating. The italics work was begun in 1730 and completed in 1762. It took them about 32 years to do the work. At times, their added words are helpful in our understanding because they help us grab a hold of the context, and that's usually what it is doing, adding some context. Other times, they are a hindrance. But the fact that they italicize their additions, at least most of them, it's always a benefit to the diligent student of the scriptures. We will first look at a few of the scriptures which are confused by the addition of words by the translators. 
Then we will look at examples where the italicized words help clarify the meaning of the original text. And so please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, Yeshua, saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Now, now the first day of the Feast of, day of the Feast of, are italicized. They are not in any text. And the addition of these italicized words make an apparent contradiction in the scriptures, a fatal error of which rarely a Gentile reader of the scriptures is aware. But we have to remember that Matthew was a Levite. He was a scribe trained in the Torah from his youth. Matthew would not make a mistake because Matthew spoke as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. But in order to properly translate the text, you, like Matthew, must be intimately familiar with the Torah, which details the timing and protocols for each one of the feasts of the Lord, the feast of which we were commanded to keep forever. And so now we turn to to understand this scripture, the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Yeshua saying, where wilt thou that we should prepare to eat the Passover. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 23. This is the reason that I had to have my Bible rebound for the fourth time, because my Bible spine broke right here, because this is the party chapter of the Bible, my favorite chapter of the entire Bible. See, when when the Almighty created man, he knew he was creating a party animal, and he said, this is how I want you to party. I want you to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. I want you to save a tithe, a tenth of your income, go up to the feast and buy whatever your heart desires. You can buy the, the oxen, you can buy the fatted calf, you can buy wine, strong drink, you know, yeah, Actually, a tie, the tenth, was to be preserved for this very thing because it's a party to him, and it's a fellowship, and this is where the entire nation got together. Uh, This is such, um, I've lived in Israel for the past 20 years, and I'll tell you, it is such a joy, these feasts. And so the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, and we begin reading in verse one. And the Lord, or Yahovah, as it says in the ancient vocalized Hebrew text, and Yahovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord. Now, these are not Jewish feasts. These are the feast of Yahovah. The Jews are the only ones that were obedient enough to, to at least uh, keep them, but these are not Jewish feasts. There are some Jewish feasts. Hanukkah and Purim are Jewish feasts. They're even in the scriptures, they are referred to as that very thing. But these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be kadosh mikra, holy convocations or holy rehearsals. I hear people all the time referring to these uh, uh, these these feasts as the feast of the Jews. The Almighty says they are to be proclaimed as holy rehearsals, holy convocations. He says, even, which is uh, in italics here, even, 
even these are my feast. You know, it doesn't even need to be there. You, you could take it out. Neither its addition nor its subtraction changes the meaning of the text. If I were to punctuate this today, I would put a period after the words, Kadosh Mikra, holy convocation, and then I would start a new verse, start a new sentence. These are, you shall proclaim them to be holy convocations, Kadosh Mikra, holy rehearsals. Period, new verse. These are my feast. I would punctuate it with a colon and continue. Verse three, as it is here. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. Now here, uh, the word Sabbath is correct with a small s because it is simply a Sabbath of rest. It is a cessation from work. A holy convocation. Holy, like Kadosh Mikra, a holy rehearsal. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. Now here, it's incorrect. They put it, this is a proper noun now. Sabbath of the Lord, Sabbath of Yehovah is a proper noun, and it should be spelled with a capital S, okay? It's a, a, a Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then it goes on, these are the feast of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons, in their moedim in Hebrew, in their appointed times. Now, keep your finger in your Bible and turn to the first chapter of Genesis. Better sheet, chapter one. Better sheet, Genesis one, And in verse 17, we read, and God, Elohim in this case, lowercase O-D, G-O-D, it would always be Elohim in the original text, and Elohim said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. So even the Almighty is into dividing, making a separation, making distinctions, okay? And he put the lights on the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and said, let them be for signs and for Moadim, his appointed times. And these signs that he put uh, in the heavens, uh, we see one throughout history, lunar eclipses, especially when they happen on the Moadim, these are, these are signs from heaven. They have been so many times called blood moons by those who are completely ignorant of what blood moons are because blood moons are an atmospheric event that is resultant from a war, a very specific war that is prophesied. And, and lunar eclipses are signs in the heavens, but they are not blood moons. This is something that's been made up by, by those who don't read the Bible, basically. And, but these, these lights on the firmament are for signs and for seasons, for his appointed times as Moedim, and for days and years. They mark out the passage of time. And the Almighty said, let them be for lights on the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. So he spoke and it was so. 
And so it was that God made two great lights in the firmament, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, he made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good in the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, go right back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Now, after his instructions concerning the Sabbath, which is the weekly feast, this Kadosh Mikrah, this holy rehearsal, that concludes six days of work at creation, and six days in which we as human beings are instructed to work, and then we rest on the Sabbath day, which is begins in the evening, which uh, in the Western world, Friday night at sundown, until then Saturday night at sundown. Um, it, it only basically in English is it called Saturday or Saturn's day, uh, uh, you know, in... Uh, uh, in Spanish, it's sabato. In most of the languages of the world, they didn't change it, but only in English uh, is it, uh, for the most part, uh, in English, that's where it's predominantly called uh, after the god Saturn, okay? Not after the plant, but after the god uh, Saturn. But it is the Sabbath in every other language on the planet. They've maintained the biblical reckoning. It's a pagan culture that completely shifted this whole thing. Okay, and so after six days of work, on the seventh day, you gotta be able to count to six, and the seventh day is the Sabbath. And then it goes on to say, after the instructions concerning the Sabbath, in the fourth verse it says, these are the feast of Yehovah, even holy convocations, holy rehearsals, which you pro shall proclaim in their seasons, in their appointed times, their moedim. These are the annual rather than the weekly feast. Now, verse five, in the 14th day of the month, of the first month, at evening, that is when the day begins, that is Yehovah's Passover. Now, here at Passover, the Lord's Passover, Passover is spelled here in the English King James incorrectly with a small p. This is a proper noun. Even Bill Gates' Microsoft Word will autocorrect if you spell Passover with a small p and Sabbath with a small s. It's like this is a rule of the English language, but the translators, to minimize these feasts of the Lord, which is the Sabbath is a weekly feast and Passover a yearly feast, they put it with small letters to minimize a proper noun. It's not even correct in the English language. You can't do that, people. Do not minimize what the Almighty says are holy. You're gonna minimize it with lowercase? We're not gonna allow that to happen, but here the point is, it is on the 14th day at evening when the sun set, this begins the Lord's Passover, the 14th. And verse six, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, small U and small b. In Hebrew, it's the Feast of Matzah, all right? And it should be, it should be spelled with a capital U and a capital B because it is a feast of the Lord. 
It is the feast of Yehovah, the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. It is what is referred to in the New Testament, in the Gospels, as a high Sabbath. It doesn't matter what day of the week it falls on, the 15th day of the month, you do no work there, it's a holy convocation, you begin eating unleavened bread at that time. As a matter of fact, that's when you eat the lamb. And then it says, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh for the seven days of the feast of matzah. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And so, Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, speaking unto the children of Israel, saying to them, when you come into the land which I give you, and you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, and you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is how the priest in the temple conducted it until the temple is destroyed and then the Pharisees changed the reckoning. This is, this is the morrow after the Sabbath, the feast shall wave it. This is Yom HaBikarim, the day of the first fruits. And this is absolutely critical in understanding Yeshua's resurrection. Now, now that we've gotten the background, now that we understand the context of what Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is from the scripture. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, wait just a minute. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and said, where should we prepare to eat the Passover? We have a real problem here. Because the Passover is sacrificed, first of all, when the sun sets, at the end of the 13th, that is now the 14th day of the month. This is the day, from sunset to sunset, this is the day, the 24-hour period, in which the Passover lamb will be sacrificed. And what was done during the second temple period is that the following morning, there were two oversized loaves of bread that were put up on the wall of the Temple Mount by the place of the trumpeting, which is the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, right up there where everyone could see it. When the priest removed the first loaf of bread that day, after that, no more bread, leavened bread, uh, artone in, in Greek, but no more leavened bread, hametz, was eaten after that point. Then when they brought down the second loaf, then is when all of the leavened bread must be destroyed, completely burned, incinerated. Then the Passover lambs were sacrificed up on the Temple Mount. And at the time of the second temple period, Josephus said there were more than 250,000 Passover lambs sacrificed. And remember, it's a lamb for a household, and your household enough to eat the lamb all that night, then you, have, you get together with others. So it is two and a half million people came up to the feast. The number that I've ever heard, it's at 800, with the current population of the entire 
metropolitan area of Jerusalem today. Hollywood could not come close to doing a movie to show this. They could more the extras, I don't care how much money you throw at Hollywood, they could never do this right. And so now, what we see is that afternoon, the Passover lambs are sacrificed, they're put in the oven before sunset, then at sunset, it is now the 15th. It is now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We eat the Passover lamb with unleavened bread, and it is a high Sabbath. Then seven days later is another high Sabbath. Now, if the disciples came to Yeshua on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and said, where do you want us to keep the Passover, prepare the Passover, he would have had to say, you're a day late and a dollar short. The Passover lambs were sacrificed the day before. We missed it. Last night would have been Passover. Or he would have said, aren't you a little early, boys? because you know it's gonna be an entire year before Passover is sacrificed again. Well, here it is, ladies and gentlemen, right here. It is now the first takeout day of the feast of, all right? Because it was added. It's the first day, excuse me, it is the protos. Protos, the first, it's the first in sequence. It is preceding of Azamon. It is preceding matzah. Preceding, now, preceding matzah, first in sequence, preceding matzah, the disciples came to Yeshua saying to, unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Ladies and gentlemen, it's literally the preparation for the feast of matzah, which begins in earnest on the ninth day of the Aviv. That's where it says in John chapter 12 that Yeshua came up to Jerusalem six days before the Passover because the fifth day before Passover, that is the 10th of the Aviv, and that's when the Passover lamb is selected. And so it was during this week that they're out in Bethany, staying in Bethany, that they came to Yeshua and said, where is it that you would have to prepare the feast? And so he instructed them where to go, to go into the city and to find a man that's carrying a water pot, falling to his place, and that is where you are going to make preparation. And so by adding the words in, day of the feast, that completely destroys the integrity of the scripture. And it cannot be done, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to take the words that were added, realize that they were added. We are not going to blame holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We are going to take it right back to the original source and we are going to find out that the Almighty has inspired his people correctly, and if we have added words in because we don't understand the context, then we are going to be in real trouble. Real trouble. Now, this verse, once we do it correctly, now the, the protos, now the beginning, the preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and said, where would you like us to prepare to keep the Passover? Now this verse makes sense to an Israelite who has been keeping the feast from a childhood. That they make sense to a Jew who's been raised understanding the Torah's life. 
A Gentile who was raised as a heathen would neither understand nor care about such details. But the Gospels were not written by Gentiles to Gentiles for Gentiles. They were written to and by Israelites to whom the oracles of God, the communication of Almighty God was committed to them. And as the scriptures plainly state, it was the nation of Israel who was commissioned by the Almighty to get his word out to the world at large. They were the nation of priests and prophets who were to reconcile the world back to the worship of the one true God. Unfortunately, the vast majority of English Bible translators, the ones who are brave enough to take on the task of translating from the original languages, they were Gentiles, raised in a Gentile world, a thousand years and thousands of miles removed from the land, language, and culture of Israel. These Gentile scholars, many of whom were tortured to death for even attempting to get the scriptures in the language of the common man, they also brought their lack of cultural understanding and their inherited scriptural misunderstandings to the job with them. I don't blame them. I applaud them. I thank God for them regularly in my personal and in my public prayers. We are not worthy to unbuckle their shoes, but yet we stand on the shoulders of these giants of the faith. The least we can do is to be diligent workmen of the word that they left behind, to obey what we do understand, to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints of the first century, to fight for the understanding of that which Yeshua referred to as this gospel of the kingdom that he and his disciples preached. Not the name and claim it, seed, faith, prosperity, greasy, grace, sloppy, gothy, wealth of the poor laid up for the wicked, manipulating private jet jockey, the televangelist of this current generation. Well, we are now going to go to another scripture, one of Shaul's letters in which an italicized word was added which destroyed any possibility of understanding the context. In Shaul's letter to the believers in Colossae, he wrote, as is recorded in Colossians chapter two, verse six, as you have therefore, or therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Messiah, Yeshua the Lord, so walk ye in him. In other words, follow him rooted and built up in him, in what he teaches, established in the faith, as you have been taught, according that you are abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, this is a quote directly from Deuteronomy, beware, be circumspect, watch all the way around, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Spoil is a military term. When an army takes a nation, Everything that was in that nation becomes spoils for the conquering nation. So you beware lest any man spoil you through their world view, through the deception of vanity, going after things, after the tradition of men. Now this is after, not in time, but by in following after. After, by following after the tradition of men by following after the rudiments of the world, the individual blocks, rudiments that make up the whole that, uh, of their world, and not by following after Messiah. Now, we, we, we move on from there, and we're gonna go down in, into verse 14, which is speaking of the Messiah. In verse 14, it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances 
that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And see, these handwriting of ordinances, that's what he nailed to the cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them, these man-made ordinances, this handwriting of ordinances uh, in it, that is, in the cross, to which he nailed their handwritten commandments that Yeshua was constantly and vehemently violating. That's what got him nailed to the cross. See, I've heard people talk about these handwritten ordinances, the handwriting of ordinances as being the, the, the Torah, the commandments of Almighty God, that is absolutely insane. All we have to do is look at the context. In verse 20, it says, uh, wherefore, this is why if you are dead with Messiah from the rudiments of this world, why is though living in the world or their world, are you subject to their ordinances? They're handwritten, man-made ordinances by following after the commandments and doctrines of men. At any place in the scripture, are the commandments of Almighty God referred to as the commandments and doctrine of men? No, the handwriting of ordinances are the man-made rules and regulations of Phariseeism that Yeshua was constantly and vehemently violating. We've got two different categories here. Let no, the, the, these, these pagan sun worshipers in Colossae who would capture you and spoil you and destroy your life by you following after their worldview and adapting their traditions and end up not following the Messiah. And then we've got on the other hand, the, in Colossae, the synagogue with the Pharisees who want to control and manipulate you by their man-made commandments. Now, verse 16, therefore, therefore let no man, let no man judge you. Now in context, who is a no man? Both the pagan sun god worshipers who would spell you of your reward for following Messiah if you follow their traditions and adapt their philosophies and the religious leaders who manipulate, intimidate and control you by their man-made commandments. Let neither of these men or divisions of men judge you. And then it goes on to say, and what? In meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile your reward. And then it lists a number of things that are not as culturally relevant today as they were in Colossae in the first century. So now, we come to my point concerning italicized words that were admittedly added to the text, purportedly to enhance the understanding for the, uh, the uh, English reader. Verse 16, therefore, let no man judge you, not in meat, in drink, respect of a holy day, or the new moons, or the Sabbath days. Now the word days is in italics, uh, is somewhat confusing, ambiguous, because you, most people think this is the weekly Sabbath. No, we already read that every one of the feasts begins and ends with the high Sabbath. These are the Sabbaths of the Lord, okay? Every feast begins and ends with the Sabbath, regardless of the day of the week in which it falls. And then in verse 17, it says, which are, each one of these things are all a shadow of things to come. 
And then, and so each one of these things, meat, drink, uh, the holy day, the new moon, which is the creator's calendar, which is determined by the sighting of the first sliver of the new moon. All of these things are prophetic shadow pictures of good things to come. They, uh, the feast of the Lord is what it's talking about. What is it that we do in meat and in drink? It is when what we do at Passover, we eat, we drink, we eat and drink specific things. These are all pictures. Yeshua said, you know, this is my body which is broken for you. This, is, this represents my blood, the blood representing the renewed covenant. All of these things are prophetic shadow pictures of good things to come. But if we've been raised in complete ignorance of the feast of the Lord, we have no idea what is going on in the gospels. These are all shadow pictures of good things to come. And then it says, but the body is of Christ. It makes absolutely no sense. The body is of Christ, the word is, is in italics. The subject of the sentence is a call to action. Let no man judge you. Then a list of number of things that are an integral part of the feast of the Lord that we were commanded to keep forever. But now, in the context of time, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, and the Pharisees have assembled at their academy in Yavne, and they insist that the sacrifices that were once required in the temple have been replaced by prayers, good deeds, and alms to the poor, and that everyone must now obey their invented, handwritten ordinances as the standard of righteousness. In Colossae, the pagan sun god worshipers, on the other hand, those who would want us to join them in their celebration of the reincarnation of Nimrod as baby Tammuz on December 25th, and the reincarnation of Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, as Easter, the sex goddess of Babylon who miraculously turned a bird into an egg-laying rabbit, yes, they want us to follow them. They want to pressure you to eat the wild boar that killed Tammuz on Easter Sunday when Tammuz's mother was reincarnated as Easter, the queen of heaven. Both of these ignorant and disobedient groups want to judge us. They want to bring us into the bondage of their systems of religion which is forbidden by the scriptures. They are abominations. We, no one is allowed to add or subtract one single commandment. Do not learn the way of the heathen. Do not learn how they worship and serve their gods, do the same thing, and say you're doing it to me. It's an abomination. We are told not to do this. And we are then instructed, don't allow them to judge us. They are not your judge. So the question remains, if they are not to judge, who is to judge concerning the things that were commanded by the Almighty, but are no longer physically possible once the temple's been destroyed? Can we present the first fruits anymore at the temple for the offering? No. Can we sacrifice the Passover lamb? No, we're commanded never is it to be done the gates of our own city, only at the place where Yahweh puts his name. So they were commanded to, to do these things forever, but now that's not physically possible, who is to judge concerning this? Paul gives us the answer. The body of Christ, the body of Messiah, the body of spirit-filled believers who are led by the Spirit and will be led into all truth according to what Yeshua said himself. It's the body of Messiah, not the body is of Christ. That makes no sense. Let no man judge you on these things, but who is to judge the body of Messiah? 
as, as Shaul said to the Romans. So we, being many, are one body in Messiah, and everyone members one of another. He said to the believers in Corinth, for by one spirit we are all baptized, immersed into one body, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. Now, another in Corinthians, now you are the body of Messiah and members in particular. Shaul was led by the Spirit to communicate a profound truth to the followers of Yeshua at Colossae. Do not get taken hostage by the philosophies or satanic traditions of the pagan sun worshipers. Do not get snared by following the man-made religion of the Pharisees, who Yeshua repeatedly warned us, do not follow the talking note of the Pharisees. We were emphatically warned that neither of these two groups were to be our judge concerning the things that always were and forevermore shall be an integral part of biblical faith. And even though we cannot technically and legally keep the Feast of Passover, we recognize that Yeshua was our Passover who was sacrificed for us, as he eloquently stated to the saints in Corinth. But if you never do Passover, if you never celebrate Passover, you have no idea what it even means. So the question is, if no pagan and no Pharisee is allowed to judge us in these matters, if they are not the repository of all truth and wisdom, who is? The question must be answered by in this letter or the entire letter is vapid. Who is to judge? The body of Messiah. Add the word is into this culminating statement, it makes no sense whatsoever. Take it out, it was never there. We, the body of spirit-filled believers, decide each year how we're gonna celebrate the Feast of Pesach and Matzah and Shavuot, Yom Truot, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and even the winter feast that were Yeshua celebrated in Jerusalem. The Jewish feast, Hanukkah and Purim. Yes, these are the only feasts that are Jewish. The rest are, always will be, the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Yehovah. They are the most wholesome and rich worship experience afforded the powers of the Messiah, both now and in the millennial kingdom. In fact, when Yeshua reigns upon the earth, the prophet Zechariah told us that all nations of the world will come up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, and they will worship the king, Yeshua, as Yehovah Tzavot. If they do not come up to worship at his annual birthday celebration, when the word is made flesh and tabernacled, secoded among us, it will not rain on their nation for the entire year. That is not an extended weather forecast, that is a death sentence, people. Now, now we can practice. We can rehearse these holy rehearsals. One day it will be mandatory. Enjoy them all, welcome to the kingdom. The kingdom is among us. Bow the knee to the king now and you'll be spared the rod of iron in the future. Everyone will bow, why not start now? Let's take a look at another italicized word that destroys the integrity of the scriptures. It concerns the resurrection and the teaching of the first century confidence men parading as preacher that there is really no resurrection and that the dead are just are already floating around heaven with angel wings, harps of gold, singing My Sweet Lord with George Harrison. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of my favorite sections because this was given by revelation to Shaul. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. He is the one who says that he will raise the dead. But, but, every man in his own order, and then it lists them, and I will properly punctuate. Messiah, comma, 
the first fruits, comma, afterward they that are Messiahs at his coming, comma, then cometh the end. Wait, cometh is in italics. It wasn't there in the original text. It makes no sense. We are being given the order in which all will be made alive in the resurrection. Messiah, the first fruits, those who are Messiahs at his coming, called his personal presence or parousia, and then the end, not then cometh the end, then the end, which is the final, the last, the end resurrection. When he shall have, we continue on, the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, how do we know that removing this added word cometh is the rightly dividing of the word. Because it is in agreement with every other passage of scripture on the same topic. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Turn there, Revelation, right here near the end, chapter 20, verse 11. Now this is after the millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Messiah on earth from Jerusalem, and it says, I, John, Yohanan, saw a great white throne in him that sat on it. Get the picture. Imagine him seeing this vision. I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God in the books. The scrolls were opened. And another scroll was open, which is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to the works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to the works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. See, hell is not the lake of fire. Death and hell or the grave are cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the end. The last of the resurrections in which all who have ever lived shall be raised, judged, rewarded, or thrown in the lake of fire to never be remembered again. Having refused to qualify to live in the eternal kingdom. This life is a test. Do you want the truth? Do you want eternal life? Or do you want to experience a lifetime of disappointment and pain only to wake up in the end resurrection and realize you had missed the entire point? It's your choice, but you have to make the choice now. We are all going to end up in the grave. There will be a resurrection and Yeshua will be your judge. 